may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Well, this is the Sunday next before Advent, the Sunday before Advent, which is sometimes informally called Stir Up Sunday in Anglican circles. And the most obvious reason for that is because we have in our collect those opening words that say, Stir up, we beseech thee, O Lord, the wills of thy faithful people. But in England, and some of her former colonies, less so the, the United States, it was also a reminder to prepare and stir up the Christmas pudding. Uh, because English Christmas puddings must be prepared several weeks before you can eat them. It takes a certain amount of fermentation process. And um, I understand you, at the end, you light, it on, light the brandy on fire. It's, it's crazy. Um, but uh, it was this, this Sunday, this stir-up Sunday, was a useful cultural mnemonic for people to say, Oh, yeah, it's time to go make that Christmas pudding. Though the traditional pudding preparation has declined somewhat, even in, even in England, uh, my understanding is you can get mixes these days that make it a lot easier. And, of course, England is a, has become a much more secular nation than even we are. I guarantee you that newspapers and blogs and online articles all over uh, England will be running little articles about Stirrup Sunday and its roots in the Book of Common Prayer. Well, I don't know about you, but I, I do love how so much of Western civilization has Christianity lingering in its cultural memory. The Anglican tradition developed with the assumption of Christendom, this assumption of a generally Christian society run by Christian rulers, much like the imperial church of the, of, the, of the church fathers, the patristic period at the end of the Roman Empire. It was also designed um, really with that cultural assumption in mind. Uh, we recently had a long series in Wednesday, our Wednesday classes about um, those first seven ecumenical councils and that idea that the emperor is on board and kind of overseeing the process is, is just part of the assumption of what's going on there. Now, the, the English church, as an established church, uh, historically saw itself as the soul of the nation. And at times, this led to the clergy being little more than civil servants. You can see that in uh, Victorian-era novels like uh, the Trollope, the ones by Anthony Trollope. But it also gave us periods of, of great periods of general piety when the gospel was being proclaimed and heard by just about everyone in the nation. Even in the American expression of the Anglican tradition, where we have had no established church, there is no establishment, uh, Anglicans and Episcopalians historically have had a much larger representation among those who ran the country than um, their demographic numbers would suggest. We've never been more than maybe 5% of the nation, but there's always been a good number of congressmen and senators and even presidents that were Episcopalians. George Washington himself was a devout Anglican before the Revolution and a devout Episcopalian for his whole life afterwards. Well, with our history of Christendom, it can be difficult at times to remember that there is always a sense of being in a kind of Babylonian exile for God's people. This present earth is not our home, even when we have good Christian rulers and a generally Christian society. 
Our for the epistle passage this week is from the book of Jeremiah, the prophet in the Old Testament. It's for the epistle because it's not an epistle, it's from the prophets, but we use it in lieu of the epistle today. At the beginning of his ministry, well, really, Jeremiah understood both sides of this coin, this kind of um, Old Testament-style Christendom and the Babylonian exile, because at the beginning of his ministry, he was the prophetic voice crying out against the establishment in the kingdom of Judah. Judah had an established church, so to speak, in the temple system. In fact, God had established that system. It was set up by God himself. But by Jeremiah's day, it had become a very corrupt kingdom, very corrupt worship. Idolatry was rampant right alongside the temple worship. Many times the same people going to both, the same people engaging in both forms of worship. And God's judgment was eminent. So Jeremiah was tasked by the Lord to warn God's people of that judgment and to call them to repent. Well, many of the people responded with apathy, but many others responded with outright anger at Jeremiah, especially when he prophesied that the temple would be destroyed. God wouldn't tear down his own house, they said. It doesn't matter what we do. God's not going to shoot himself in the foot, as if God needed his temple. When the Babylonians came, they found out that Jeremiah was indeed right. The temple was destroyed and God's people were kicked out of the promised land. And so was Jeremiah. In the last part of his ministry, Jeremiah was preaching among those exiles in Babylon. He told them that God would keep them in exile for several generations, for 70 years, and that they need to get used to it. In Jeremiah 29, he writes this to the people. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And that's verses 4 through 7 of Jeremiah 29. Well, at its best, this Babylon, both in its literal sense in the Old Testament, as well as its figurative sense for all the various Babylons that have come since, at its best, Babylon will be a place where God's people flourish as aliens under a generally benevolent regime. But at its worst, Babylon is a place of persecution where the pagan powers of this world seek to snuff out God and his people. And we see both of these extremes in the book of Daniel, where Nebuchadnezzar favors Daniel and his friends until, that is, their worship of God conflicts with his agenda. Then Nebuchadnezzar builds a fiery furnace. And what this tells us is that ultimately we need a better kingdom. We need God's kingdom with God's man sitting on the throne. We need a new and better Moses who will give us God's word. We need a new and better uh, Aaron who will offer sacrifice on our behalf. We need a new and better Joshua who will bring us into the true promised land. We need a new and better David who will fight for us, build us a home, and rule in justice and mercy. 
We need a new and better Elijah who will tell us the truth from God and vanquish those prophets of Baal. And that's what's promised in our For the Epistle reading from Jeremiah 23, beginning at verse 5. That's on page 225 in your prayer book. Jeremiah 23, 5, page 225 in the prayer book. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So this is, of course, a messianic prophecy, an Old Testament passage that foretells about our Lord Jesus. Jesus is the heir of David, the promised king who would fulfill all the promises God made to Israel, to David, and by extension to us. Not only will he reign, but he will, as a prophet said, deal wisely. Whether we're looking at the vacillations of Nebuchadnezzar or the insanity of American party politics, our Lord's wisdom is quite a welcome relief from our various Babylons. And he will be a truly, and is a truly, righteous and just king. This is certainly a contrast with even the best of Babylon's rulers. We long for true justice. We long for things to be set to rights. And Christ's reign does just that. And at its best, Christendom is a shadow that points to how good it is when Christ is king. You know, the pagans, before, before the coming of Christendom, before there was such a thing as an established church or even a um, widely Christian culture like we see in the States, though the pagans didn't see intrinsic value in people. If you uh, didn't want to have a daughter, and a lot of them didn't, you leave her out on the rocks and she's gonna, and nature will take care of things. And, and they were brazen about it. They, they, they didn't do that in shame. They were just open about it. If, uh, you, um, if you were old or if you were sick, oh, there was maybe you got taken care of if you, were, if you were rich, if you were powerful. But for most folks, that's the end. Nobody cares. Your wife, she's, uh, she's your property. A little bit more useful than the, than the goat or the cow, but not much. And let's not even talk about rampant slavery. But when the church comes in, when Christianity takes over, those abandoned children get adopted. Uh, the women and the, and, the, and, the, and the slaves are treated with dignity. When, when the church comes in, Hospitals are formed. Orphanages are formed. And that's what we see in all those places with the Christian heritage because Jesus does see value in everyone. Even in this city, if you look at our hospitals, you see kind of a legacy of this. We have only one hospital in this city that's not attached to a church. And that's the, the public one downtown, University Hospital. All the other ones, you know, that's why they're Stone Oak Methodist. Uh, downtown Baptist, you know, that sort of thing. Christa Santa Rosa, you know, it's, it's, it's part of that Christian heritage. But we need more than good society. So let's pick up in verse 6. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell secure, securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Well, in perfect righteousness and justice... 
you and I are also in trouble. As we say in our general confession in the daily offices, we have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no help in us. We all offend against God's perfect law, even after we are baptized Christians. But in saving God's people, the Messiah is called the Lord our righteousness. Our God and King himself is our righteousness because our righteousness on our own is damnably insufficient. Well, commenting on this passage, Lancelot Andrews, one of the most important Anglican bishops of the 17th century, a key translator of the King James Bible, and the uh, guy that gave us that great um, kind of guideline as to uh, what we look at as Anglicans, you know, we, we say um, the boundaries of our faith are uh, one Bible uh, coming to us in two testaments, three creeds, four, uh, four centuries, um, and the... Uh, series of fathers in that time, whatever. You, you know all the rest. <laughs> Maybe you don't, but it's a really cool, cool passage. Um, or four general cancels, five centuries, all that. That comes from Lancelot Andrews kind of describing, this is where we set the boundaries. Well, Lancelot Andrews commenting on this passage, he observes that there are two kinds of righteousness we see in the Bible. One is based on what we do under good influence, and the other one is based on what the judge, with a capital J, pronounces. So Andrews writes, The one is ours by influence or infusion, the other by account of imputation. The question is, which of these meanings does the prophet intend? In this verse, the prophet speaks of one who is a king exercising his royal judicial power and also of a king sitting down to execute judgment. And this he tells us, before he thinks proper to tell us his name. Before this king thus sits down on his throne to do judgment, the righteousness that will stand against the law, our conscience, Satan, sin, the gates of hell, and the power of darkness, and thus so stand that we may be delivered by it from death, despair, and damnation, and therefore to life, salvation, and eternal happiness. That is righteousness indeed, this is the righteousness we seek for, if we may find it. So in other words, Christ places his righteousness on us, a divine righteousness, a perfect righteousness, so that the divine and perfect judge may declare us truly righteous. It's only then that we may, as the collect says, plenteously bring forth the fruit of good works by living according to God's holy law. Verses 7 through 9. Behold, therefore, sorry, let's try that again. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of the countries where he has driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. The salvation promised with the coming of the messianic branch would be so great that it would overshadow the exodus from Egypt. When you read your Old Testament, you see that uh, the exodus is the defining event of Israelite history and of Israelite identity. Israelites are exodus people. But the cross is a greater exodus. 
a greater rescue mission to bring God's people out of slavery, a true rescue mission of which the Exodus was just a type and a foreshadowing. Just as the Israelites passed through the Red Sea, so now the Lord brings us through the waters of baptism out of all our countries and into his own kingdom. So next week we begin Advent, a time of expectation in the exile for the coming of this promised king who is called here the Lord, our righteousness. And as the Israelites awaited the Messiah before his first coming, so do we eagerly and expectantly await his second coming. That's what Advent's all about, really. Is it's, it's both of those things. You'll notice as we go through the next four weeks, our readings focus on his return, not just on his first coming. And that's why our collect prays that the Lord would stir us up. But next week also begins the Christmas season in our wider society. Chances are some of you have already put up your trees. And if we didn't have to buy a new one, we would have done the same. Our, our old one was covered with spider's eggs, and we're like, we're not doing this. <laughs> that thing's going away. Uh, you know, and if you haven't put up your tree already, if you're a bit more uh, Advent-disciplined, um, you've certainly heard the holiday music already. Gosh, we were hearing that even before Thanksgiving. All those winter wonderland things, and mixed in some uh, parable or some, uh, some, some carols about the Lord and his coming. Just like the reminder of Stirrup Sunday um, is to get the Christmas pudding mixed and prepared, so too this season becomes a reminder for many of our neighbors that there's something or someone bigger than they are. Even as the Lord told them, I'm sorry, even as Jeremiah told them to await and expect the Messiah, Jeremiah also told the Israelites to bloom where they're planted and to seek the welfare of Babylon. Well, we can do the same by introducing our neighbors to our returning king. And the truth is, those cultural remnants of Christendom in our Babylon have already built the bridge during this Christmas season. So may we be stirred up by the Lord and then go out and stir up our neighbors, always pointing back to that righteous branch, our Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.